We turn now to God's word. So please, Second uh, Peter, we're continuing in our series, Second Peter chapter 2. If you're using the Bibles here, the Blue Bibles, this is going to be page 1018, 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 22. All right, 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like Irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. 
For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we have gathered here today, all of us, in different places. Some of us come expectantly, some of us perhaps not so willingly. Lord, speak to us. We pray. Let us hear the warning here. Uh, A warning about false teaching around us. And Lord, let us not shy away from the possibility of of false uh, teaching in our own lives. We pray that you would convict us. And Lord, you would also comfort us. For we know that you are a gracious God who speaks to his people in order to uh, draw them closer to himself. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In his commentary on this passage, David Helm describes a painting by the famous Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh. The painting is called Still Life with Bible. It shows, the painting shows, it's a simple painting. It shows a table and on it, there's a large sort of old school family Bible open. And next to the Bible is a burned out candle. And then in front of that is a small yellow book. And one can just make out the title on the binding of the book. The Joy of Life by Emile Zola. Now, you don't need to know anything about that book to get Van Gogh's point. The Bible has burned itself out and is no longer needed. The yellow book jacket points us to the new light in people's lives, according to Van Gogh. Whatever brings them the joy of life. Van Gogh's idea is not original, People have been dismissing God's words for the pursuit of whatever they think will bring them joy since the Garden of Eden. Peter dedicates here the center of his letter, the main portion of his letter, to warning us about people that teach these kinds of ideas. He's actually been preparing his readers ahead of time to reject this false teaching, right? So he begins his letter in chapter one with a plea. He says, make every effort to pursue holiness, to grow. This is the opposite of what these false teachers are saying. That you can pursue pleasure and not be judged. And then in the second half of chapter one we saw last week, he he talks about the importance of the Bible. This is a a lamp in a dark world. He says, you need this 
to see how poisonous these false teachers are. So he's been preparing us to reject uh, this teaching as we approach chapter 2. And, you know, the thing that probably struck you most about this chapter as we read it, I'm guessing, is just how much Peter goes on and on about these false teachers. I mean, he's got a lot to say about them. He truly believes they are dangerous. I I hope you saw that. So I want to begin by talking about the danger of false teaching. We need to see why Peter thinks this is such a big deal. So my first point, the danger. Now to understand why this is so important to Peter, we've got to remember some of the things we know about him, right? You guys know some things about Simon Peter. You remember him? Uh, Strong, impetuous, a former fisherman. Right? You remember that he's the one who claimed he would never leave Jesus, he would die for Jesus, and then denies Jesus right, three times before his death. But do you remember how Jesus restored him after his resurrection? Now, the story is told at the end of the book of John, chapter 21, where for each time that Peter had denied Jesus, had rejected him as his, his Lord, his King. Jesus gives him a new task. Feed my sheep. That's the call. That's the central call that he gives Peter. This is what will be part of your life. This is what you will pursue, Peter. Feed my sheep. Think of Peter's strength and his loyalty applied to that task. And then imagine how angry he would be to see people slipping poison into the food of the sheep. The people of his king, the one he loves, right? You, you begin to understand his passion here. It begins to make sense to you, I hope. And if that intimacy and loyalty that you see between Peter and Jesus is compelling to you, if it's something that is attractive to you, you want to participate in, then this has to matter to you too. False teaching is not just a boring early church problem that, you know, we don't need to worry about. This is a question of, are the ones that Jesus loves being fed or poisoned? This is not a danger we should treat lightly. And what are some of the things that makes this false message so dangerous? Well, first, it's devious. It's devious. Verse 1 says, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Or later, at the end of verse 13, Peter says, they revel in their deceptions while they feast with you. That feast may be a reference to the Lord's Supper, but even if it's just a reference to church fellowship meals, the point is clear. False teachers and false teaching will appear in your midst, and it won't market itself as false teaching. It will be deceptive. False teachers won't tell you as you're sitting at the fellowship meal discussing this new idea, oh, just so you know, what I'm suggesting is actually heretical. No, right? It will be introduced to you as something that is 
neat, cool, novel, and freeing. Something that other people missed. Something that your parents failed to see, that the church has never quite got right. It will offer you something you think you want, or it will take away something you think is burdensome. But it will be a lie. It will not be true. It will be a deception. A second reason this message is dangerous is because these are significant doctrinal errors we're talking about. Notice in verse 1, for instance, Peter tells us that these guys are denying the master who bought them. What they're teaching in some way denies that Jesus is the king of their life. In chapter 3, we're going to also see that another thing they were teaching was that Jesus was not actually going to come back to judge sin. He was not actually going to judge sin. That's part of what they were teaching. These are serious departures from clear biblical teaching. Obvious departures. These are not people who just disagree about what to wear to church or what songs we should sing or, you know, even maybe more uh, things we like to argue about like infant baptism or uh, church government or what the book of Revelation is saying. This is an important clarification because Peter is not giving us the right to call every Christian who differs with us a heretic. We need to be careful about this. You will run into churches where every doctrine is an essential doctrine. If you don't agree with them on every little thing, you begin to feel like, well, maybe I'm not really actually a Christian. On the other hand, you come across churches where... Almost nothing is an essential doctrine. And as a result, they're not really teaching Scripture anymore. They can only teach those parts that they think everybody who walks through the door will agree with. We want to be careful to avoid both of these extremes. At our church, we try to balance this out by having a pretty detailed summary of what our leaders must agree to in the Westminster Confession of Faith, so that even you can have a, you can have a clear idea of the type of doctrine you're going to be taught here. Uh, even if you disagree with some of those things, at least we're upfront about it, we hold ourselves accountable to it, and you know about it. Uh, and then in terms of members, we only require members to agree to five key things that we think uh, are the essentials of following Jesus. Very briefly, The Bible is God's word. God is a trinity. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Christians must pursue holiness and they must join a local church. That way our teaching has clear safeguards, clear boundaries, but our community is as accessible as it can be to all sorts of Christians. Now a third dangerous thing we're told about is that this false message will be popular. Peter says that in verse 2, that many will follow the false teachers. And just look at the examples that he uses even in verses 4 to 8. Noah and seven others escaped the flood. Uh, Lot and two others escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. These are extreme cases, but they also reflect what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14. The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. When you see mega churches with thousands of members, I think there is a place to ask, 
Is there something biblical that we can learn from what they're doing? But you also need to ask, is their popularity the result of true teaching or false teaching? Because false teaching will be popular. That's what Peter says. But it will not give life. And Peter has some hard words for those who poison the sheep. Fourthly and finally, we should notice that this message is dangerous because it's especially uh, tempting. It's especially dangerous for Christians who are weak or who are new to the faith. So in verse 14... Uh, Peter says these false teachers entice unsteady souls. Those who are unsteady are struggling with something. Uh, Maybe a tragic event has left them questioning God. Or maybe a long sin struggle has left them spiritually weak, doubtful. If you're in that place, you especially need to be in a healthy Christian community. It is not a time to deal with something on your own or to uh, look for advice from non-Christian friends or secular sources. Peter mentions this idea again in verse 18. He says uh, that these false teachers entice those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. This is probably a reference to new converts who are still entangled with their old lives, with their old friends, with their old things that they used to do. And they're particularly vulnerable then to false teaching that says you can have both. If you're a younger Christian, don't take this warning lightly. If you're a young person away at college, don't take this lightly. Make sure you set yourself up with healthy spiritual food. Make sure you're regularly seeing and hearing clear biblical teaching. But what are these teachers actually saying? What's their message? So we turn to my second point, the message. The message. Their message is not really entirely clear. Uh, Peter doesn't lay it out in by point by point basis, but we can pick out some themes here. Um, probably the most consistent idea is this word sensuality and a bunch of other descriptions that sort of dance around that general idea. Um, so, verse 2 many will follow their sensuality. Verse 10 those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. Verse 18, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Sensuality means a throwing off of inhibitions in the pursuit of whatever brings you pleasure. So all sorts of sexual desires are indicated here, but also gluttony, uh, things like uh, greed for money or possessions, Uh, drunkenness, uh, freedom from authorities, rules. In their religion, you see, they've replaced the Bible with Van Gogh's yellow book from our introduction. The joy of life as defined by me. But did you notice that in, in Peter's description of these false teachers, much of their message is not actually spoken. Especially verses 10 to 16, 
Peter's really just telling us how they act. And this is very important to notice because you may have been thinking to yourself, as this whole topic of false teaching came up, as I read the text, and you thought, okay, we're going to talk about false teaching today. You may have been thinking, well, I don't do much teaching around here. I mean, yeah, you better believe after this sermon, Ash, I'm going to be keeping a close eye on you. I'm going to keep a close eye on Jonathan, but nobody lets me have a mic, so I guess this isn't an issue for me. But don't we have that proverb, actions speak louder than words? You really think the way that you live your life doesn't have all sorts of powerful messages embedded in it? You really think when you fight with your spouse or you sin against your children or your parents or your friend and you fail to ask their forgiveness, you aren't lying to them about how Christians live? Don't the priorities of your life say more about what you believe than anything that you say with your mouth? This whole false teacher thing is not just out there in the big bad world. It's not just up there on the stage. There's a false teacher in all of our hearts. Maybe not at the level of these guys. But just because you don't speak doesn't mean you don't teach. Let yourself be a little bit scared by this idea because then you'll ask Jesus for help. And that's when the Christian life begins to get real. But we need to talk about the destination. Peter tells us false teaching is dangerous. He tells us a little bit about the message of false teaching. And finally... He tells us about the destination of false teachers. So my third point, the destination. This is really, I think, the clearest point that Peter makes. False teachers and all who follow them will be destroyed. Uh, Peter tells us in verse 17, these false teachers are waterless springs. They offer you hope of water in the wilderness but they don't deliver. They're like mists driven by storms, right? You, you feel the, the, the cool breeze, the, the moisture on the air. You haven't had rain in a long time. You think, oh, finally, rain, and then the storm just keeps going right on by. And you're left feeling drier than ever. That's the only destination these false teachers can lead you to. That's the only destination our yellow book entitled The Joy of Life can promise you. The greedy message of the world that you can pursue your own pleasure and be satisfied is a message of exploitation. It's always going to leave you thirsty for more. It cannot satisfy. Ultimately, this message will destroy you as surely as... Peter promises that these false teachers will be destroyed. He's very clear about their destination. There's no nuance here. Their destruction is not asleep, he says in verse 3. It's going to happen. And then he goes on to prove it, right? He gives these three historical examples of God's commitment to judging wickedness. The angels were judged. They didn't get a free pass. 
The world during the time of Noah was judged. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were judged. He says that's an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. The Lord has shown he knows how to judge evil. And especially, verse 10, those who indulge their desires and despise his authority. In fact, we won't have time to speak about this in depth, but in verses 20 to 22, Peter goes on. He says, if you've learned about Jesus, you've become part of his visible church, and then you reject him, you turn away. You're even worse off than if you'd never heard of him before. But there is another destination that Peter hints at in this text. He's pretty committed to warning here. It's a grim passage. There's no denying it. But he can't help but throw in just a little bit of hope. It's in verses 4 to 8. Look at those with me. He's, He's making this argument that judgment is certain. And he says, if God did not spare, if He did not spare a second time. If he turned to ashes, but then the fourth time, he switches the pattern you're expecting. And he says, if he rescued. You see that? So that when he finally then hits the then, which is supposed to be the crescendo of his argument, and we're expecting then he will judge these false teachers. Instead, he says, then the Lord knows how to rescue. This is the only part of the entire chapter that's not a warning. I mean, you can look through it. It's all warning. But here we have a word of comfort. It acknowledges an important reality, right? We will face hard things. Only false teachers will tell you that you can live your life without facing trials. But it also tells us that God knows how to rescue the godly. He rescued Noah. He rescued Lot. He knows how to rescue you. Maybe you don't feel like one of the godly. Well, thank you, Peter, for using the example of Lot. If you remember anything about Lot, well, he wasn't your typical godly person either. Uh, He made some very bad choices. Even when he leaves Sodom, he basically has to be dragged out of the city by the angels. Lot is called righteous not on his own account. It's very clear with him. But because he's one of God's people, he happens to be related to Abraham. God does not sit around waiting for his people to make themselves righteous so that he can then go and rescue them. He does what is necessary to make his people righteous and then He supplies the strength so that they can grow in righteousness. You see, the reality is here, we will face false teachers. Peter thinks it's very certain that these people he's writing to will face them. He says, they are among you, not they might be. And the reality is that sometimes we will find our own words, our own actions, preach, proclaim a a false message that we will need to repent of. But friends, the Lord can rescue you, even from yourself. Cry out to him for help. 
And as you look towards him for help, there's actually one other way that this text can comfort you. You see, by painting for us this picture of a false teacher, and Peter does a good job, it makes us thirsty for the good teacher. The one who was not greedy for his own gain, but who made himself nothing for the good of his sheep. The one who was not a boaster, not a blasphemer, but a life giver. The one who does not seek to exploit you, but perfect you. The one who not only speaks the truth to you, but who is unable to lie to you. He is not a waterless spring. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our Savior. You promises, Lord, that he will rescue us. As we look at this grim picture of the false teacher and the things that they teach, we know, Lord, that we are tempted by these things. We know that we can see them in our own lives. And we are so grateful that you, Lord, do not reject us. You do not turn away from us. But you offer a way of rescue. Let us hear the warning in this text, Lord. Let us be careful. Let us listen carefully. Let us commit ourselves to your word, to the light of the truth, Lord, knowing that it will never burn out. And Lord, let us consistently seek you, Lord, that you might rescue us from our sin that you might give us the strength to grow in holiness, to identify false teaching, and to teach what is true and what is right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.